0: Welcome.
1: Benvenuti. Hola. Bienvenido.
0: Welcome to the A Fire podcast now streaming on Apple, Google, Spotify, and more. Each episode features real and honest conversations with thought leaders from around the world at all levels of the commercial real estate and investing business, examining the ideas and questions fundamental to the future of our industry. Where are we now? What happens next? What should we do about it? How do we become better investors, leaders, and global citizens? For more, here's your host and the CEO of AFIRE, Gunnar Branson.
1: So much has changed, but is real estate ready to change with it? It won't be easy to do, but it's something we must do. This is the second part of a conversation with Tracy Haddon Lowe, a fellow with the Ante and Robert M. Bass Center for Transformative Placemaking at the Brookings Institute, where we will explore some changes in the world and its impact on the built environment. So, uh, well, I want to shift again. Um, You you talked a lot about um, kind of the the demographics of housing and how it's changing. And I was really interested in this and I'd love to hear more about it. So we've got the housing we have. It's basically built on a design that's from the 19th century or the mid 20th century um, and may or may not be what we actually look for at the same time that we have a housing shortage. Um, Where do you think all this is going or needs to go in terms of housing, single family housing?
2: Well, I think the bottom line is that it's clear that it's it's past time for another generation of innovation in the home building uh, sector specifically, mm-hmm. that it's time for not just the new technologies that there seems to be a lot of interest in, both from regulators and within the sector, but it's also time for new designs and there are a lot of exciting ideas that are coming out of the Congress for the New Urbanism and other design groups that are trying to think bigger about and more flexibly about the future of housing, whether that's accessory dwelling units uh, within or outside the home, or whether that's um, uh, thinking smaller in terms of multifamily and looking mm-hmm. at multifamily possibilities that are uh, what, what, what are what's called missing middle housing. Mm-hmm. And I think that um, we need to really open the floodgates in terms of making it really easy for um, entry level builders of all kinds yeah. to enter the industry and start producing this kind of small scale product.
1: It also seems to me it's a zoning question, too, in terms of what's allowed with whatever lot is in the city, as people are trying to figure out how to have additional dwellings, perhaps, on their land to create another uh, income source, etc.
2: Without question, this is a zoning problem. And I think that this has been shown time and time again in cities where cities are looking at um, neighborhoods where there hasn't been a single building permit pulled in 30 years. (laughs) And then they do zoning reform. And then all of a sudden there is new market energy. Um, The problem in the United States, generally speaking, is is not just um, the availability of capital. Right. There's actually a ton of capital in the United States and including um, international capital that wants to right. invest in the United States. There's a ton of it. What there's a shortage of is uh suitable shovel ruddy projects that um, investors can understand and, right. and, and can, and can, and can package as an investment opportunity. And so we need to get a lot better at, um, at scale, mm-hmm. uh, you know, creating these investment concepts and then getting them to market.
1: I hear a lot of frustration from my members around zoning specifically and urban planning. Secondarily, uh, do you think there is that we're in, in need of? A, I mean, let's put it this way: investors are often blamed for why things aren't working, um, and designers are blamed for things not working. And I keep wondering: there's an invisible, a couple of invisible parties in this game: uh, the zoner, the urban planner, um, is. Does this need a reset as well in terms of rethinking it?
2: Absolutely. I would include regulators in the public sector as as part of the real estate industry um, that that need reform. But I think to speak to the specific tension that you're highlighting, you know, there is um, a group in the public sector that's responsible for regulating real estate, um, including entitlements, right, including zoning. Mm -hmm. And that group is accountable to one set of constituents. And there is not enough overlap between that group and those constituents, and then the investment community and the real estate community that wants to do these projects and these deals. Yeah. And it is easy to talk past each other and to point the finger of blame at each other. Yeah. What is harder to do, but is necessary is to recognize that we need to integrate these two sectors. Mm-hmm. And I mean that very literally. Yeah. That Real estate as a community needs to take a look at who is doing these deals, who is structuring these deals, and who is benefiting from these deals. And they need to redraw that boundary so that it includes more of the constituents who have a say in the entitlements process. And until those Venn diagrams overlap more, Uh, The talking past each other will continue. The frustration will continue and things aren't going to change. It is very important that we get to a new paradigm in American real estate where more people are participating and more people are benefiting. We will not integrate neighborhoods and we will not reform the entitlements process until we integrate the real estate industry.
1: Well, Tracy, you are a data scientist, one of the questions that I have when talking about these issues in particular is the interpretations of what is the good is quite oftenly divergent. So for example, everyone talks about Jane Jacobs and walkable cities. It means different things to different people, very different things, and is interpreted by various parties in different ways. and Jane Jacobs isn't around anymore so she can't tell us exactly what she meant but you know i think there, there there's often been misinterpretation even you know from when she wrote that wonderful book um, i keep wondering if part of what needs to happen here is that we're not all kind of speaking with the same words but with different languages and somehow move towards a data centric interpretation of what's happening and what needs to happen
2: so because I'm a data scientist, I'm sympathetic to what you're saying, and of course I wish it was true. But I don't think the issue here is that we don't have access to the same information and that, uh, and that we're just uh, maybe interpreting it wrong or interpreting it differently. I want to emphasize again that I think the issue is, is, is not just a lack of information. I think that um, people are motivated to um to get information and they're eager to interpret it when they see that there's they that they need it that it's relevant to them and that there's an opportunity for them to benefit from having that information and i think that until we address these motivations and incentives and at the same time also address um, constraints and fairness that We won't get any closer to all getting on the same page about what's going on and what needs to
1: happen. That makes sense.
2: That said, of course, I'm a huge advocate for information.
1: Well, there (laughs) you go. (laughs) Please,
2: please. Please look at my graphs, because I do really (laughs) believe that part of the problem here, right, is that, um, for example, that there's this huge mismatch between the existing housing inventory in the United States and the kind of household arrangements that Americans are forming today. Right. So I do think that there's room here for not just new kinds of information, but there's a there's a clear market opportunity here to put out a new model and a new product, and that if people could see that, then they could imagine it. So I do think that there is some room for innovation.
1: So you talked about the households being different and, the, and the, a need for a better a different design, one that's more interpretive. What, what is different about the families today than what we're building for?
2: Well, the huge growth in the number of very small households. Right. So in previous generations, the most common form of household arrangement was um, a a, a pair of adults, spouses, um, who had at least one child. That was the vast majority of households in the United States. Um, But today, um, uh, we're looking at a very different story. And so there is much more demand for uh, alternative housing forms that aren't necessarily uh, for families. Um, And there's also a huge amount of demand just for smaller housing forms. So at the same time that the industry is really oversupplying the biggest house, the biggest single family four plus bedroom houses, Um, There's really, really strong market demand for studios, one bedrooms and two bedroom units, whether those are whether those are apartments or um, starter what you know what we used to call starter homes.
1: Well, to switch gears a little bit, uh, we have this, this uh, thing that happened, COVID, um, which everyone is talking about an accelerator of, of previous trends um, and also something that's really, really hard to get through. But um, our CBDs, our offices are being impacted perhaps by that, although it's very much slow motion because of the long-term leases. So how do you think office is going to change?
2: I think that we can look to trends that were going on before the pandemic that have, that have been accelerated by what's happening with COVID and that that tells us what's going to happen. So uh, the first is that um, office work overall is growing. The US economy is moving in the direction of creating more and more jobs in the knowledge economy. So that actually at the base implies uh, growth in demand for offices as as knowledge work increases. But at the same time, we're seeing that those jobs are organizing themselves spatially very differently than they did a generation ago. Mm -hmm. Especially in the knowledge sector, and especially within the knowledge sector in the information sector, we're seeing very, very intense clustering of these jobs. So um, we're talking about a sector that relies on specialized talent and what's called tacit knowledge, it's knowledge that is difficult to transfer by either writing it down or just saying it out loud verbally. So um, knowledge that's difficult to, for example, just c- communicate via Zoom or PowerPoint. <laughs> mm-hmm. And um, that kind of tacit knowledge is... Um, directly related to the increased productivity that comes from knowledge spillovers that are created when um uh workers are in very close proximity mm-hmm. right they these operate at very very small spatial scales. so I'm, I'm talking about not just agglomeration within a particular region like within you know uh northern california but um agglomeration, clustering within individual neighborhoods, and even individual buildings. Mm. So we see these jobs are clustering really intensely. One issue with that kind of really intense clustering is both that it results in higher costs, right? Because it means that it's a very small number of places that are in very high demand.
1: Yeah,
2: um, And it, it also like logically increases congestion. And so, you know, one way to deal with that, those increased costs and friction is to consume fewer square feet per worker. So to look at office floor plates that are more like a store that are more open and, uh, and, that, and that can further facilitate the productivity effect of a collaborative setting, um, but uh, also to have increased telework right? So to give workers increased flexibility in when, where, and how they're using office space. So those are all pre-pandemic trends that I think we're just going to see accelerated by the pandemic. Mm -hmm. So telework was growing before the pandemic. I think it's going to grow even more now. The number of square feet per office worker has been declining um, in top in the top office markets of the United States um, consistently since the Great Recession. And I think that there is a lot more room <laughs> um, in outside of the top 10 office markets um, yep. for that trend to continue for that trend to expand and continue. Um, so at the same time that office work is growing, I think we're going to end up in a situation where a lot of existing office product is functionally obsolete because. Mm-hmm. um Jobs are it's in the wrong location or it's the wrong floor floor plate.
1: Now, some people are, are, are suggesting that we might see a reversal of the shrinking of the office space because of covid. But do you think that that's something that that we get over and still want to be clustered?
2: I truly do believe that the pandemic w- is going to be contained at some point and that um, at some Mm -hmm. point we will be talking about a post-pandemic world i think that it's likely that there will be long-term demand for outdoor activities and for the flexibility of telework um but that it is um unlikely that 10 years from now um you know that 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 people won't be willing to you know be in a room unless all the windows are open for example
1: yeah well, in, in aggregate, then, do you see a shrinking of demand for CBD office?
2: So it's I think it's really tricky to say what's going to happen with aggregate demand and to predict it along a particular timeline, right? Because you have these two intersecting trends of like the knowledge economy is growing, knowledge work is densifying and Um, Getting bigger, but at the same time, the number of square feet per worker is going down. So there's a new equilibrium that those two trends are going to reach over time. But exactly when they reach that equilibrium, I think it's unclear. In the short term, um, I think the bigger problem is not going to be, oh, you know, is there enough demand or whatever? I think the issue is that the demand is shifting. And so um, a lot of existing office space w- is functionally obsolete as office space, and there will still be strong demand for new office space in prime mm-hmm. locations like like downtowns, um, but also in the uh, you know eighteen-hour neighborhoods within the favored quarter.
1: So, what in your mind is what it should be? Where are we going? Um, As we go through all these crises, what is that new place look and feel like?
2: So if we're looking at a situation where all of these converging trends mean that the way that we use real estate in the United States across products is going to be changing a lot, that means that um, investors and asset managers are going to need to be more flexible and creative about how they purpose and use their spaces and generate cash flow from them. So that means that obsolete office buildings will need to be adapted to new residential or institutional uses. That means that um, many residential spaces, um, uh, regulators and lenders um, are going to need to create new flexibility for owners and asset managers to adapt those spaces to changing demographics and changing weather. And that we're going to have to get more creative in terms of how we structure leases Mm -hmm. and how we structure the management of risk in insurance in order to uh, be able to do all of this in a way that is uh, that's that's attainable, that's that's feasible. And I believe that we can do it. um, But I think the really important thing for people to acknowledge is that Um, When we get to the post-pandemic, it will not be a return to the pre-pandemic status quo, that it's um, instead an opportunity to innovate and while innovating, do something truly
1: good. That's great advice. Uh, I'm reminded of uh, something that a friend of mine said uh, about halfway through the year last year. He said, you know, I'm not afraid of how much COVID is going to change the world. I'm just afraid it won't change enough. Amen. And thank you uh, for your passion and your information. Uh, I think we do need to change and do some good. Thank you so much, Tracy, for being a part of the A Fire podcast. Thanks for having me,
0: Gunnar. visit afire.org slash podcast.